So, Acts 1, beginning at verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in, it, in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Alkadama, that is, field of blood. For it is written, in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward to Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, and show, one of, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So that's the text. Uh, there's some fascinating stuff in here about Judas, about Matthias, and about how the early Christian church functioned. Again, this is a picture of us. How do we look? Do we look like our photograph? Do we look like our picture? So let's go back through the text. Uh, you notice we're in the period because it starts in those days, verse 15, in those days. So we're in that period between Ascension and Pentecost. So we're in the midst of that 10-day period. And uh, Luke probably could have recorded a lot about that 10-day period. Uh, but he specifically chose what he chose to record about the 10-day period. So uh, this is significant, obviously. Uh, but I think also it's beautiful when in these few verses you learn some really important things about what it means uh, to be the church, to be the community of Christ. So in those days, Peter stood up. Uh, Peter is radically transformed at this point. He's gone from betraying Christ, hiding for fear of the Jews, and now he's standing up, and he's going to continue to stand up and preach to anybody that will listen to him. So Peter has been radically transformed, and we know what has caused the transformation. Uh, he, he witnessed the resurrection. Um, he's not even made it to Pentecost yet, but we see a great boldness in Peter. You also, I'm sure, remember that in the Gospels, Peter is always uh, referenced as uh, having a particular place of leadership among the early apostles. Um, we see him exercising leadership. Uh, we also notice in every list of apostles, 
uh, whenever it's presented, he's always presented first. Simon Peter's always presented first. He's first among equals, but he has a role of leadership. So here in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, among the brothers. Uh, that's going to almost become a technical name for the early Christians. Among the brothers, and then there's a parenthetical statement, the company of persons was in all about 120. Um, we know, for instance, from 1 Corinthians 15, up in the Galilee, the northern region, uh, the resurrected Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time. Uh, so we know that the early Christian community is more than just 120. Uh, this may be the community in Jerusalem. Uh, the company of persons was in all about 120. Remember last week, you saw men and women in this company. The company of persons was in all about 120. And then Peter said, verse 16. So um, here you, you run across, you run across one of the first sermons or sermonettes in the gospel, in the, in the book of Acts. Uh, you're going to see a lot of sermons, a lot of speeches in the book of Acts. Most of us assume that um, Luke is summarizing because uh, he, he, you know, I know some of you wish sermons would last about three minutes, uh, but they usually don't. They never have. So when you look in the book of Acts, you're probably dealing with summary uh, statements from Luke. Uh, verse 16, here's the sermon. Brothers, there's the word again, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. So you notice real quickly, uh, when you look at what the church is doing during this period, um, they're together, they gather they're meeting, there's preaching, and preaching is not just based on Peter's mood at the moment. Peter's using scripture. In these, four, in these few verses, you're going to see it's very, very clear that uh, Christian preaching, earliest Christian, Christian preaching was based on scripture. Um, you see how it's going to be based on scripture. And uh, you're going to see... Um, you're going to see Peter using Scripture. And again, don't forget, for the early Christian community, the Scripture, the Bible for them, is what we call Old Testament. That's all they have at this point. Uh, that's all, obviously, you see them quoting at this point. So uh, here they're together. Preaching is occurring. Preaching's based on Scripture. Um, I know there's some preachers out there that are a whole lot more creative than I am, and they find a whole lot of other things to base sermons on in Scripture. I'm not sure I'm very fond of that. It's not, it's not uh, fair to the prototype of Christian preaching. It's really clear in the book of Acts. Uh, preaching is based on Scripture. Preaching is basically um, expositing, sharing what the Bible teaches. So here's Peter. He's standing. He's in a leadership position. He's talking to the 120, and he says, verse 16, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. It's really clear. The New Testament community considers the Holy Spirit to be the primary author of Scripture. This occurs throughout the New Testament in several places. Uh, throughout the 
Old Testament where you see it over and over and over and over are the dozens of times the prophets will say, thus saith the Lord. So scripture um, comes through human instruments. You see here it was David. Scripture comes through human instruments, but the primary author, David might have written it, but the author, the primary author, is, is the Holy Spirit. I don't know what you think Scripture is, but the New Testament is clear that the early Christian community assumed Scripture to be something that the Holy Spirit authored. Um, using human instruments, like in this situation, David. Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 is where we find that famous verse, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's almost a technical term in the Greek. All Scripture is God-breathed. Uh, God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, is the author of Scripture. Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, obviously. Had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And he's going to quote you some Scripture from two Psalms in just a few moments. Uh, that he's going to use those two Psalms to teach you about David. I mean about Judas. So he's talking about Judas here and how Judas did what he did in fulfillment of Scripture. That absolutely does not take the responsibility off of Judas. You're going to see that, too. But he, he did what he did in fulfillment of Scripture. It, you know, God didn't say, well, my goodness, look at what Judas is doing. Uh, didn't catch God by surprise. But that doesn't take, the New Testament never allows that to take uh, the responsibility away from Judas. Anyway, Holy Scripture comes, the, Holy, the Scripture comes from the Holy Spirit, speaking through the mouth of David, had to be fulfilled. He's going to talk about Judas now. Uh, Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. That's what Judas got for those 30 pieces of silver. About 120 days wage for an average laborer uh, in that culture, in that day. That's what he received from, um, that's, that's what he gave to the Jewish religious leaders in exchange for his 30 pieces of silver. He led them in the middle of the night, when there were not crowds around, to the place where Jesus would have been in the middle of the night so that they could arrest him um, without crowds being present. Of course, we know that's the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas knew where they spent the night. Judas knew where Jesus was going to be. So uh, Jesus took the 30 pieces of silver from the religious leaders of, uh, of, the, of the temple there in Jerusalem, and uh, he became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Verse 17, for he was numbered among us, he was one of the twelve, he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. He was one of the twelve, he was allotted his share with, in the ministry, it actually was treasure, we're told in the Gospels. So he, he was one of the inner circle. Uh, another parenthetical statement uh, in uh, verse 18. Uh, and I, I could tell when I read it, it got your attention. Um, verse 18. Now, this man acquired a field with the reward. Actually, it was bought in his name. We know that from Matthew 27. Because the way it was bought, Judas received the 30 pieces of silver. 
He took the um, Jewish religious leaders with some temple police, um, probably some Roman soldiers, uh, a lot of them, and they went and arrested Jesus in the middle of the night. Well, then after that arrest occurred, uh, Judas goes and kills himself. Before he went and killed himself, he, he flung the money back. We read in the gospel. He flung the money back, gave it back to the religious leaders. Well, those religious leaders realized it was blood money. It was tainted money. So those religious leaders went and bought a field. Uh, you're going to read about the field in a second. You read about the same field in Matthew 27. They went and bought a field there outside of Jerusalem. Um, and um, they bought it in Judas's name, in memory of Judas. Uh, that's why the, the field uh, we know from tradition is in the Valley of Hinnom, which is south of Jerusalem, outside the city. The Valley of Hinnom, which um, you can say Gehinnom, the Hinnom. Gehinnom becomes Gehenna, which becomes the New Testament word for hell. It's that valley uh, there uh, south of um south of Jerusalem, where they burned garbage. Before they burned garbage, uh, before, the, um, before, the Israel, before the Israelites had Jerusalem, uh, David captured it. Before the Israelites had Jerusalem, uh, pagans sacrificed children there to their pagan gods, to the god Moloch. Uh, so the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, is a place of trash where garbage was always burning, um, not a nice place. So that, that became the title that becomes hell. So anyway, you want to learn about this land. So this man acquired a field. It was required actually in his name and his memory. With the reward of his wickedness, because he gave it back. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Now, if you know your Bible... In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, where you have the other account, how does it say, how does it say there that Judas killed himself? He hanged himself. Um, now, there's a couple things you need to know about this. We don't need to know this. I want you to know this. Um, you need to learn something about hanging in the first century. Because, again, when we say hanged himself, you envision, so does Hollywood, you envision somebody hanging on a rope. Because that's how we hang people. Guess what? The world doesn't revolve around us. And they've not always done it the way we do it. Um, so the way they hanged people, ropes are harder to come by. The way they hanged people in the first century, which we know this from a lot of evidence. The way they hanged people in the first century was not a rope. That's the way he did in the Wild West. Not that way. They would either crucify them. You've heard of that one before, haven't you? Being hanged on a cross. They would either crucify them or impale them, which means you're thrown over a pointed stake, and that kills you, obviously, and that, that's being impaled. You may know that from the book of Esther. You get that again. Even in the book of Esther, it's, it's translated into the English "hanged." Haman was hanged, but we know they were not ropes. They were in the 
the Persians impaled, the Romans impaled. So, one, you got to get rid of the image of the, the rope. Um, so the hanging and the bast and the hanging and the uh, bursting of the bowels are not contradictory. If you if you read it correctly, it's not contradictory. Uh, even if it were a rope, and by the way, I'm always fascinated at, at how many um, study Bibles will say this, because again, we're we're pretty captured by our age. Uh, some of the study Bibles will try to reconcile the hanging and the bursting of the bowels by saying the rope broke and he fell. And he, um, you know, fell among the rocks and his, his bowels were burst out. Well, that, may, that could be true. But again, historians would take probably no ropes involved. So the bursting of the bowels is very obvious when you're impaled. Because that's pretty much where the, the stake comes through. Um, the other thing, though, that um, may lead to the bursting of the bowels. If you look at your word, depending on your English translation... Uh, I got ESV, English Standard Version, in front of me, where it says falling headlong. In the ESV, the word headlong has a little number beside it, a little number four. That's a textual note. That if you go down to the bottom of the page, you see number four. Um, you see the reference, and you see that that Greek word can also be translated swelling up. So uh, he, he swelled up. And his bowels burst. One of the things that we know occurred in the ancient world, and it was unusual that it did not occur to Jesus. And we know why it did not occur to Jesus. Usually when, um, when uh, Romans crucified, hanged somebody, uh, usually um, we see this throughout the Bible in several places. One of the most humiliating things you can do to someone that you hate to your enemy, is you kill them, and you you don't take their body away quickly and bury it. You leave it there for the elements. That's why we have we have um, historical records from people like Josephus that there were times like after the revolt of Sepphoris, the city of Sepphoris, there were like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people hanging on crosses that were left there for a long time, because again that's meant to be a deterrent. You know, you don't mess with Rome. That's meant to be a deterrent. So literally, the bodies would, would hang there until uh, they almost decomposed and fell off. Uh, and, the, and, the, and the scavengers would eat it. That was part of the ongoing humiliation of, of somebody that was killed. That, that could have very well been done also to, to somebody like Judas, who hanged himself. Uh, he hanged himself after throwing his money back to who? Threw his money back to religious leaders. So he might have been left there for a while, which might be another reason uh, why um, his, his bowels burst. Uh, anyway, I, I know you, you, you didn't pay extra to learn all that stuff. <laughs> but the, 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 the important thing about that is, is again, when you read anything... You know, be a little careful about, I mean, obviously when you read something, you're reading it with 21st century eyes of people from High Point, North Carolina. And we can't hardly help that. That's who we are. But just at least pay attention. I mean, we're not the center of the universe. Uh, Hanging does not mean always what we think it has to mean. Uh, There's not enough rope. It's much easier and cheaper just to throw someone on a stake. And actually, and again... In the Jewish tradition, 
not the Roman, Romans crucified or impaled, but in the Jewish tradition, they stoned you to death. That was their form of capital punishment. You're going to see that later with Stephen in the book of Acts. And by the way, even when they stoned you to death, the way they usually did that was not through rocks at you. They threw you off the cliff on the rocks. Um, remember, they tried to do that to Jesus in Nazareth. Anyway, I give you that at no extra cost. So Judas did not have a good ending. Judas did not have a good ending. He burst open in the middle and his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language. What would be their own language? Aramaic. Thank you, Mike. Aramaic would be their language, uh, which was called in their own language, Akadama. Now, Luke, being a Gentile, who loves the Jewish community, knows you're not Jewish. He knows you probably don't know um, Aramaic. So he translates it. In the gospel, he translates it into Greek. Um, but here it's translated into English, Akadama, that is, field of blood, or bloody field. This is the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, uh, south of Jerusalem. So that's the name of this. So even when, when Luke is writing this, Obviously, the first um, people who read this gospel knew this site well. They, they knew where he was talking about. Look at verse 20. This is something I really want to teach preachers. For it is written, Peter says, back to the Bible, back to the Bible. And he's not quoting the New York Times or Sports Illustrated. For it is written in the book of Psalms. Again, they, they, they preach scripture. That's a Jewish thing. It was a Christian thing. It should still be a Christian thing. For it is written in the book of Psalms, and you, you're going to see here, Peter's going to quote two Psalms. Uh, first, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. Oh, we call that Psalm 69 is where you'll find that. And let another take his office. Psalm 109. Now, if you were to go back, the Jews listening to um, Peter didn't have to do this, but if you were to go back and look at those psalms, you would see that both of those psalms, like several of the psalms, are aimed at David's enemies. And what David is talking about in those psalms is the, um, um, what happens to his enemies. May his camp his family, his people, his tribe become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. Well, as soon as he thinks about that, um, the, the author Luke decides, okay, take his office. Let's start talking about who took Judas's office, who took Judas's place among the 12, because you can't have 11. You can't have 13. It's got to be 12. When you take, I don't do math well, but when you take one away, that leaves you 11. You take Judas away, you're left with 11. It's got to be 12. Why does it have to be 12? 12 tribes of Israel. Has to be 12. Because this is the new beginning that's offered the people of Israel. Um, Jesus makes it clear that in the coming fulfillment of the kingdom, the millennial kingdom, the twelve will sit on thrones. 
with Jesus to rule. So the 12 will help rule in the millennium. The 12 represent uh, the, the reformation, the reformation of Israel, the 12 tribes. Can't have 11, can't have 13. Uh, as far as the, 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 the real inner core, the apostles. So they're down to 11 here. Um, by the way, before I get past Judas, um, it's been amazing to me over the course of 38 years, because I started this when I was five. Over the course of 38 years, it's been amazing to me how many people worry about Judas's eternal destiny. Um, yes, it was in fulfillment of Scripture. It didn't catch God off guard. But we know that Judas went to hell for um, for for a couple for a couple reasons. Um, he he went he went to hell, but he's called the son of perdition in the gospel. Son of perdition is a nice way of saying son of hell. So that's one of the ways that the gospel um, authors uh, mention it. But um, uh, you're also going you also going to see. Um, that he went to his own place. Uh, you know, his wick, the reward of his wickedness, falling headlong, bowels bursting out. Everybody knows about this. Uh, you're going to see that he, he, he goes to his own place. Now, his own place wouldn't have been, you know, South Jerusalem. His own place would have been, <clears throat> would have been hell. So, again, the New Testament, I'll show you some beautiful evidence of this later in Acts. The New Testament has no problem saying it was predestined and Judas is responsible. Uh, that's a little hard for us to fathom. We either assume it's our responsibility or God causes it. Uh, the New Testament knows that there's a mystery between both our free will and the work of God, uh, the, the foreknowledge. Uh, I mean, how Judas fulfilled Scripture. But don't let Judas off the hook. Almost every time that Judas is mentioned in the Gospels, Almost every time it says Judas, comma, the one who betrayed him. I mean, they won't let they won't let Judas off the hook. Anyway, back to this. We got to replace Judas. We're down to eleven. Uh, now the the group is much larger than eleven, but you got to have the twelve. That becomes a technical term, the twelve. You got to have the twelve, and the Jewish community why knew why it had to be the twelve. Look at verse twenty-one, going on to the next part of this text. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went out and among us. There's, a, there's the first requirement. Whoever takes Jesus' place has to be someone that, that was there the whole time. They couldn't have just showed up last week to become a Christ follower. So uh, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went out and among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day when he was taken up, that's the ascension, which you saw last week, one of these men, one of these men, so obviously there's more than just the 12 that have been accompanying them. We know that from the Gospels. One of these men who've, who've been with the Jesus movement, from the beginning, one of these men uh, have to be chosen, and these men are chosen to do what? The text tells you. One of these men must become with us a witness to what? So this has to be someone that was with them the whole time and someone that can go out and bear witness to the resurrection. 
So there were probably a few that would fit that bill. But look at, look at what they do and look at how they chose the person to take Judas's place. And they put forward two. Joseph, that would have been his name, Yosef. That would have been his Hebrew name, Joseph, called Barsabbas. Barsabbas is an Aramaic nickname. We know what Barsabbas means. If you think about it long enough, you know what it means. Bar, you know, I can remember um, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah. Bar means son of. Bar mitzvah. When someone's bar mitzvahed, that's because they become a son of the covenant. A son of the covenant or a son of the commandments. So bar Sabbath, Sabbath. So Joseph was nicknamed son of the Sabbath. Maybe he was born on the Sabbath. So Joseph with the nickname Barsabbas, who was also called Justice. It was very common in the ancient world because, again, they're speaking Aramaic. Their religious language is Hebrew, which is close to Aramaic. The whole world was speaking Greek and writing things like your whole New Testament in Greek. And then you had some of these Romans running around speaking Latin. So that's why a lot of these people had multiple names. Like, for instance, we know Saul, Saul Paul had two names, right? Yeah, Paul, Paul was his um, Roman name, Latinized name. Saul was his Hebrew name. He didn't get a new name when he was converted. He was Saulus Paulus from day one. He had his Hebrew name and his Latinized name. So here Joseph had his Aramaic nickname, Barsabbas. He had his um, um, Latinized name, Justice. By the way, Justice means the just one, the righteous one. So, you know, Joseph's probably a great great guy. We don't know anything else about this one. He's son of the Sabbath. Either he was born on the Sabbath, or he could have been really good at Sabbath observance. Known for it. And just as he's righteous. He, he, he's, he's a just one. Um, so that's the first, one of the two choices. And the second one, Matthias. So there's the two choices that, that, that they're led to. That they're led to. Uh, from their number from which to choose someone to replace Judas, because you've got to have 12. Um, so you see here in the text, preaching, preaching from Scripture. You've already seen this in Acts 1. Look at verse 24. And they prayed and said. So before, you know, they, they've kind of narrowed it down to these two, but then they pray. So again, do we look like our picture? Uh, preaching, preaching scripture and prayer is very much a part of the community. And they prayed and said, you can get the text of the prayer. You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry. The word ministry, by the way, uh, if you saw the Greek there written out in English letters, you would know what that meant. The word ministry is diakonia from which we get the English word deacon. Uh, Diakonia just means someone who serves the ministry, diakonia, to take the place in this ministry and apostleship. You've seen the requirements for apostleship. Had to be with Jesus the whole time, and they have to be a witness to the resurrection. Uh, to To take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside, there it is, to go to his own place. New Testament knew what that was. 
his own place. Uh, one of my, um, well, one of the things I like to remind people that C.S. Lewis wrote about is in many, many places when he writes about heaven and hell, C.S. Lewis writes uh, about the fact, he says in one place, the door to hell is locked from the inside. And what he means by that is people in hell choose it. They want to be there. It suits them. It is the fulfillment of their choices. Um, I mean, if Hitler went to heaven, that would be hell for Hitler. Because, you know, he doesn't get to be the center of attention in heaven. So uh, C.S. Lewis writes a lot about the fact. um, If you don't know who C.S. Lewis, talk to me later. But C.S. Lewis wrote a lot about the fact that um, God doesn't send people to hell. But God will let you eventually have what you want. Again, another one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotations. It occurs in the, the Great Divorce. I know some of you are reading it in your unity group, that amazing fantasy that C.S. Lewis wrote about that group. It's a fantasy about that group who takes a journey, gets on a bus and takes a journey from hell to heaven, and they all get back on the bus and go back to hell except one. But there's a point in that fantasy when George MacDonald, when it says Lewis's heroes, says to somebody, at the end, there's only two kinds of people in the world, in the universe. There are those who say to God, thy will be done. And then there are those to whom God will say eventually, thy will be done. (coughs) You get to choose. Now, if you live your life saying, I want my will, I want my will, I want my will, God's going to eventually say, okay, hell is chosen. That's why you notice here, C.S. Lewis didn't make this up, by the way. You see here, Judas went to his own place. Hell is made for people like Judas. Hell was made for the evil angels. Uh, The people who go to hell are those who, they have lived a lifetime, or that's what they chose. They don't want Jesus. They don't want a life centered around God. They don't nothing to do with worship, which is what we'll be doing in heaven. If that's you, then eventually the dangerous, scary thing is God may say, okay, I'll let you have what you want. And you get to go to your own place. Anyway, so that's where Judas went. Um, so they're trying to decide who takes Judas' place. You've got a choice of this Joseph. you got a cho- choice of this uh, Matthias. Who do you choose? Now, the next verse has fascinated people for 2,000 years. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Uh, The next time you see the reference, it's going to be 12 again. Because he's numbered with the 11. They cast lots. So the inquiring mind should go, hmm, I've not been casting any lots in my Christian life. That's not how we choose leaders in the body of Christ today. Uh, Casting lots would have looked something like uh, taking two pieces of pottery shard, two pieces of broken pottery, put two names on it, put it in a a jug or something, shake it up and see which one falls out. That's the one you choose. Um, Doesn't seem real spiritual, and it's not. This is a good place to illustrate that you need to know the whole book. You You need to know the whole Bible. Um... You know, I mean, don't please don't take this verse out and take it back to your church and say, this is how we're going to start picking our leaders. <laughs> because hopefully somebody will say, read the rest of the book. 
Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. In the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, you are told many times that casting lots after praying, casting lots was an appropriate way to figure out what decision God wants you to make. Uh, You may remember in the Hebrew Bible, there was a reference to the Urim and the Thummim that the high priest used. And basically, that was casting lots. They would use, he would use those two things and, and use them to sort of cast lots to make decisions. So again, there's precedent in the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament. So why aren't we casting lots to decide who our church council chair should be? Well, again, you need to read the whole book. Now, I'm going to give you a um, piece of really sophisticated theology here. After chapter 1 comes chapter 2. When you go in, it, and remember, in, in the original, these numbers don't exist. We put these, we find, figured out about 800 years ago to put the numbers in the text, so I, so you wouldn't be hunting all day for a text. So that we put the numbers in eventually for our benefit. The big two that comes next was not there in the text. Um, the two's there for our benefit. So when you turn to chapter two, what happens? The day of, and that is the arrival of. So why do we give up casting lots? You've got the Holy Spirit. You see no more evidence anywhere in the Bible in Christian history of casting lots. Uh, After you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, no reason for that. It was fine in the Hebrew Bible. But after the gift of the Holy Spirit, you don't have to worry about casting lots. Um, now, there are some people out there that, um, and you might have a study Bible, they'll give you this study note. That, um, And I've heard sermons built around this. Um, they chose Matthias to be number 12. But God didn't like that choice. Because they messed up and cast lots to make that choice. So God chose number 12, and God chose Paul. I've heard sermons built around that. Um, I mean, Paul does get real prominent in this book, and Paul does get real prominent in the Christian church and the rest of the New Testament. Um, You probably know Paul better than you know Matthias. By the way, Matthias is never mentioned again, as a matter of fact. Um, you, You probably know Paul better than you know Matthias. So I've heard kind of sermons from creative preachers saying uh, they did it wrong. It really wasn't Matthias to be the 12th. It was Paul, and God's going to finally make the choice there on the road to Damascus. Um, And when he pulls Paul in. Here's the issue with that one, though. One, it is clear if you read the book, Paul is specifically an apostle to the Gentiles. The twelve are specifically um, the apostles to the Jews, to the Jews first, then to the Gentiles. Um, that comes from the Gospels, and, and even some, and, and it also comes from some of Paul's writings. Another reason that I, I don't think is accurate to say Matthias was a mistake, Paul was the real one, is throughout Paul's writings. Um, Paul references the 12 
And he never references the 12 and says, oh, by the way, I'm one of them. He never does that. So Paul really knows who the 12 are, including Matthias. And Paul did not count himself among the 12. So um, what, the, what the early church did and the way they chose Matthias was fair and good, but it got outdated real fast with the arrival of the Holy Spirit, um, which is where we'll be at next week. Uh, we get to go into Pentecost next week. So, um, yeah, you know, and, and I suspect that these verses 15 through 21 are not verses you've dealt with much lately, or maybe at all. I can sort of tell that with a busting out of the bowels. <laughs> that that's this probably a, not a real familiar text to you. But again, this is the only thing that Luke felt led to record that they did during those 10 days between Ascension and Pentecost. So next week we'll be at Pentecost, and this is a good place to stop. Let's pray together. God, help us to yield to you. Help us to submit to your word. We thank you, God, that you have revealed your will to us in so many ways. We don't know everything that we perhaps want to know, but we know everything that we need to know to live lives dedicated to you. God, we thank you for the many ways you've revealed your will to us, and we thank you that through the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, you have written it down in a book for us. So strengthen our commitment to your word, both your written word, the Bible, and your living word, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.